Chapter twenty six of El Dorado by Baroness Orzy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter twenty six. The bitterest foe. That same evening, Sir Andrew Folkes, having announced his intention of gleaning further news of Armand, if possible, went out shortly after seven o'clock, promising to be home again about nine. Marguerite, on the other hand, had to make her friend a solemn promise that she would try and eat some supper which the landlady of these miserable apartments had agreed to prepare for her. So far they had been left in peaceful occupation of these squalid lodgings in a tumble-down house on the Quai de la Ferre, facing the House of Justice, the grim walls of which Marguerite would watch with wide-open, dry eyes for as long as the grey wintry light lingered over them. Even now, though the darkness had set in, and snow falling in close small flakes threw a thick white veil over the landscape, she sat at the open window, long after Sir Andrew had gone out, watching the few small flicks of light that blinked across from the other side of the river, and which came from the windows of the Châtelet Towers. The windows of the Conciergerie she could not see, for these gave on one of the inner courtyards, but there was a melancholy consolation, even in the gazing on those walls, that held in their cruel, grim embrace all that she loved in the world. It seemed so impossible to think of Percy, the laughter-loving, irresponsible, light-hearted adventurer, as the prey of those fiends who would revel in their triumph, who would crush him, humiliate him, insult him, ye gods alive, even torture him, perhaps, that they might break the indomitable spirit that would mock them even on the threshold of death. Surely, surely God would never allow such monstrous infamy as the deliverance of the noble, soaring eagle into the hands of those praying jackals. Marguerite, though her heart ached beyond what human nature could endure, though her anguish on her husband's account was doubled by that which she felt for her brother, could not bring herself to give up all hope. Sir Andrew said it rightly. While there was life, there was hope. While there was life in those vigorous limbs, spirit in that daring mind, how could puny, rampant beasts gain the better of the immortal soul? As for Armand, why, if Percy were free, she would have no cause to fear for Armand. She sighed a sigh of deep, of passionate regret and longing. If she could only see her husband! If she could only look for one second into those laughing, lazy eyes, wherein she alone knew how to fathom the infinity of passion that lay within their depths! If she could but once feel his ardent kiss on her lips, she could more easily endure this agonizing suspense, and wait confidently and courageously for the issue. She turned away from the window, for the night was getting bitterly cold. From the tower of Saint-Germain-Luxois the clock slowly struck eight. Even as the last sound of the historic bell died away in the distance, she heard a timid knocking at the door. "'Enter,' she called unthinkingly. She thought it was her landlady, come up with more wood, mayhap, for the fire, so she did not turn to the door when she heard it being slowly opened, then closed again, and presently a soft tread on the threadbare carpet. "'May I crave your kind attention, Lady Blakeney?' said a harsh voice, subdued to tones of ordinary courtesy. She quickly repressed a cry of horror. How well she knew that voice! When last she heard it, it was at Boulogne, dictating that infamous letter, the weapon wherewith Percy had so effectually foiled his enemy. She turned and faced the man who was her bitterest foe, hers in the person of the man she loved. Chauvelin! she gasped. Himself at your service, dear lady, he said simply. He stood in the full light of the lamp, his trim, small figure boldly cut out against the dark wall beyond. He wore the usual sable-coloured clothes which he affected, with the primly folded jabot and cuffs edged with narrow lace. Without waiting for permission from her, he quietly and deliberately placed his hat and cloak on a chair. 
Then he turned once more toward her, and made a movement as if to advance into the room, but instinctively she put up a hand as if to ward off the calamity of his approach. He shrugged his shoulders, and the shadow of a smile that had neither mirth nor kindliness in it hovered round the corners of his thin lips. "'Have I your permission to sit?' he asked. "'As you will,' she replied slowly, keeping her wide-open eyes fixed upon him, as does a frightened bird upon the serpent whom it loathes and fears. "'And may I crave a few moments of your undivided attention, Lady Blakeney?' he continued, taking a chair, and so placing it beside the table that the light of the lamp, when he sat, remained behind him, and his face was left in shadow. "'Is it necessary?' asked Marguerite. "'It is.' he replied curtly, if you desire to see and speak with your husband, to be of use to him before it is too late. Then I pray you speak, citizen, and I will listen. She sank into a chair, not heeding whether the light of the lamp fell on her face or not, whether the lines in her haggard cheeks or her tear-dimmed eyes showed plainly the sorrow and despair that had traced them. She had nothing to hide from this man, the cause of all the tortures which she endured. She knew that neither courage nor sorrow would move him and that hatred for Percy, personal deadly hatred for the man who had twice foiled him, had long crushed the last spark of humanity in his heart. Perhaps, Lady Blakeney, he began after a slight pause, and in his smooth, even voice, it would interest you to hear how I succeeded in procuring for myself this pleasure of an interview with you. Your spies did their usual work, I suppose, she said coldly. Exactly. We have been on your track for three days, and yesterday evening an unguarded movement on the part of Sir Andrew Foulkes gave us the final clue to your whereabouts. Of Sir Andrew Foulkes? she asked, greatly puzzled. He was in an eating-house, cleverly disguised, I own, trying to glean information, no doubt, as to the probable fate of Sir Percy Blakeney. As chance would have it, my friend Heron, of the Committee of General Security, chanced to be discussing with reprehensible openness a uh, certain—what shall I say? certain measures which, at my advice, the Committee of Public Safety have been forced to adopt with a view to—a truce on your smooth-tongued speeches, Citizen Chauvelin, she interposed firmly. Sir Andrew Foulkes has told me naught of this, so I pray you speak plainly and to the point, if you can. He bowed with marked irony. As you please, he said. Sir Andrew Foulkes, hearing certain matters of which I will tell you anon, made a movement which betrayed him to one of our spies. At a word from Citizen Heron, this man followed on the heels of the young farrier, who had shown such interest in the conversation of the chief agent. Sir Andrew, I imagine, burning with indignation at what he had heard, was perhaps not quite so cautious as he usually is. Anyway, the man on his track followed him to the store. It was quite simple, as you see. As for me, I had guessed a week ago that we would see the beautiful Lady Blakeney in Paris before long. When I knew where Sir Andrew Foulkes lodged, I had no difficulty in guessing that Lady Blakeney would not be far off. "'And what was there in Citizen Heron's conversation last night?' she asked quietly, that so aroused Sir Andrew's indignation. "'He has not told you?' "'Oh, it is very simple. Let me tell you, Lady Blakeney, exactly how matters stand. Sir Percy Blakeney, before lucky chance at last delivered him into our hands, thought fit, as no doubt you know, to meddle with our most important prisoner of state. A child—' "'I know it, sir, the son of a murdered father whom you and your friends were slowly doing to death.' "'That is as may be, Lady Blakeney,' rejoined Chauvelin calmly. "'But it was none of Sir Percy Blakeney's business. This, however, he chose to disregard. He succeeded in carrying little Capet from the temple, and two days later we had him under lock and key. "'Through some infamous and treacherous trick, sir,' she retorted. Chauvelin made no immediate reply. His pale, inscrutable eyes were fixed upon her face, 
and the smile of irony round his mouth appeared more strongly marked than before. "'That, again, is as it may be,' he said suavely. "'But anyhow, for the moment we have the upper hand. Sir Percy is in the conciergerie, guarded day and night, more closely than Marie Antoinette even was guarded.' "'And he laughs at your bolts and bars, sir,' she rejoined proudly. "'Remember Calais, remember Boulogne. His laugh at your discomfiture, then, must resound in your ear even to-day.' Yes. But for the moment laughter is on our side. Still, we are willing to forego even that pleasure, if Sir Percy will but move a finger towards his own freedom. Again some infamous letter? she asked with a bitter contempt. Some attempt against his honour? No, no, Lady Blakeney, he interposed with perfect blandness. Matters are so much simpler now, you see. We hold Sir Percy at our mercy. We could send him to the guillotine to-morrow, but we might be willing— Remember, I only say we might, to exercise our prerogative of mercy, if Sir Percy Blakeney will on his side accede to a request from us. And that request? Is a very natural one. He took Capet away from us, and it is but credible that he knows at the present moment exactly where the child is. Let him instruct his followers, and I mistake not, Lady Blakeney, there are several of them not very far from Paris just now. Let him, I say, instruct these followers of his to return the person of young Capet to us, and not only will we undertake to give these same gentlemen a safe conduct back to England, but we even might be inclined to deal somewhat less harshly with the gallant Scarlet Pimpernel himself. She laughed a harsh, mirthless, contemptuous laugh. "'I don't think that I quite understand,' she said after a moment or two, whilst he waited calmly until her outbreak of hysterical mirth had subsided. "'You want my husband, the Scarlet Pimpernel citizen, to deliver the little King of France to you, after he has risked his life to save the child out of your clutches? Is that what you are trying to say?' "'It is,' rejoined Chauvelin complacently, "'just what we have been saying to Sir Percy Blakeney for the past six days, madame.' "'Well, then you have had your answer, have you not?' "'Yes,' he replied slowly. "'But the answer has become weaker day by day.' "'Weaker? I don't understand.' "'Let me explain, Lady Blakeney,' said Chauvelin, now with measured emphasis. He put both elbows on the table, and leaned well forward, peering into her face, lest one of its varied expressions escaped him. "'Just now you taunted me with my failure in Calais, and again at Boulogne, with a proud toss of the head, which I own is excessive becoming. You threw the name of the Scarlet Pimpernel in my face, like a challenge which I no longer dare to accept. The Scarlet Pimpernel, you would say to me, stands for loyalty.' for honour, and for indomitable courage. Think you he would sacrifice his honour to obtain your mercy? Remember Boulogne and your discomfiture. All of which, dear lady, is perfectly charming, and womanly, and enthusiastic, and I, bowing my humble head, must own that I was fooled in Calais, and baffled in Boulogne. But in Boulogne I made a grave mistake, and one from which I learned a lesson, which I am putting into practice now. He paused a while, as if waiting for her reply. His pale, keen eyes had already noted that with every phrase he uttered the lines in her beautiful face became more hard and set. A look of horror was gradually spreading over it, as if the icy cold hand of death had passed over her cheeks and eyes, leaving them rigid like stone. "'In Boulogne,' resumed Chauvelin quietly, satisfied that his words were hitting steadily at her heart, "'in Boulogne Sir Percy and I did not fight an equal fight.' Fresh from a pleasant sojourn in his own magnificent home, full of the spirit of adventure which puts the essence of life into a man's veins, Sir Percy Blakeney's splendid physique was pitted against my feeble powers. Of course I lost the battle. I made the mistake of trying to subdue a man who was in the zenith of his strength. 
Whereas now—' "'Yes, Citizen Chauvelin,' she said. "'Whereas now?' "'Sir Percy Blakeney has been in the prison of the Conciergerie for exactly one week, Lady Blakeney,' he replied, speaking very slowly, and letting every one of his words sink individually into her mind. Even before he had time to take the bearings of his cell, or to plan on his own behalf one of those remarkable escapes for which he is so justly famous, our men began to work on a scheme which I am proud to say originated with myself. A week has gone by since then, Lady Blakeney, and during that time a special company of prison guard, acting under the orders of the Committee of General Security and of Public Safety, have questioned the prisoner unremittingly—unremittingly, remember—day and night. Two by two, these men take it in turns to enter the prisoner's cell every quarter of an hour. Lately it has had to be more often, and ask him the one question, Where is little Capet? Up to now we have received no satisfactory reply, although we have explained to Sir Percy that many of his followers are honouring the neighbourhood of Paris with their visit, and that all we ask from him are instructions to those gallant gentlemen to bring young Capet back to us. It is all very simple. Unfortunately, the prisoner is somewhat obstinate. At first even the idea seemed to amuse him. He used to laugh and say that he always had the faculty of sleeping with his eyes open. But our soldiers are untiring in their efforts, and the want of sleep as well as of sufficient food and of fresh air is certainly beginning to tell on Sir Percy Blakeney's magnificent physique. I don't think that it will be very long before he gives way to our gentle persuasions. And in any case now, I assure you, dear lady, that we do not need to fear any attempt on his part to escape. I doubt if he could walk very steadily across this room." Marguerite had sat quite silent, and apparently impassive, all the while that Chauvelin had been speaking. Even now she scarcely stirred. Her face expressed absolutely nothing but deep puzzlement. There was a frown between her brows, and her eyes, which were always of such liquid blue, now looked almost black. She was trying to visualise that which Chauvelin had put before her. A man harassed, day and night, unceasingly, unremittingly, with one question, allowed neither respite nor sleep. His brain, soul, and body fagged out at every hour, every moment of the day and night, until mind and body and soul must inevitably give way under anguish ten thousand times more unendurable than any physical torment invented by monsters in barbaric times. That man thus harassed, thus fagged out, thus martyrized at all hours of the day and night, was her husband, whom she loved with every fibre of her being, with every throb of her heart. Torture? Oh, no! These were advanced and civilised times that could afford to look with horror on the excesses of medieval days. This was a revolution that made for progress, and challenged the opinion of the world. The cells of the Temple of La Force, or the Conciergerie, held no secret inquisition with iron maidens and racks and thumbscrews. But a few men had put their tortuous brains together, and had said to one another, We want to find out from that man where we can lay our hands on little Capet, so we won't let him sleep until he has told us. It is not torture, oh no! Who would dare to say that we torture our prisoners? It is only a little horse-play, worrying to the prisoner, no doubt, but after all he can end the unpleasantness at any moment. He need but to answer our question, and he can go to sleep as comfortably as a little child. The want of sleep is very trying. The want of proper food and of fresh air is very weakening. The prisoner must give way sooner or later." So these fiends had decided it between them, and they had put their idea into execution for one whole week. 
Marguerite looked at Chauvelin as she would on some monstrous, inscrutable sphinx, marvelling if God, even in his anger, could really have created such a fiendish brain, or having created it, could allow it to wreak such devilry unpunished. Even now she felt that he was enjoying the mental anguish which he had put upon her, and she saw his thin, evil lips curved into a smile. "'So you came to-night to tell me all this?' she asked, as soon as she could trust herself to speak. Her impulse was to shriek out her indignation, her horror of him, into his face. She longed to call down God's eternal curse upon this fiend, but instinctively she held herself in check. Her indignation, her words of loathing, would only have added to his delight. "'You have had your wish,' she added coldly. "'Now I pray you, go.' "'Your pardon, Lady Blakeney,' he said, with all his habitual blandness. "'My object in coming to see you to-night was twofold. Methought that I was acting as your friend in giving you authentic news of Sir Percy, and in suggesting the possibility of your adding your persuasion to ours.' "'My persuasion? You mean that I—you would wish to see your husband, would you not, Lady Blakeney?' "'Yes. Then I pray you command me. I will grant you the permission whenever you wish to go.' "'You are in the hope, citizen.' she said, that I will do my best to break my husband's spirit by my tears or my prayers. Is that it? Not necessarily, he replied pleasantly. I assure you that we can manage to do that ourselves, in time. You devil! The cry of pain and of horror was involuntarily wrung from the depths of her soul. Are you not afraid that God's hand will strike you down where you stand? No, he said lightly. I am not afraid, Lady Blakeney. You see, I do not happen to believe in God. "'Come,' he added more seriously, "'have I not proved to you that my offer is disinterested? Yet I repeat it even now. If you desire to see Sir Percy in prison, command me, and the doors shall be opened to you.' She waited a moment, looking him straight and quite dispassionately in the face. Then she said coldly, "'Very well. I will go.' "'When?' he asked. "'This evening. Just as you wish. I would have to go and see my friend Heron first, and arrange with him for your visit.' Then go. I will follow in half an hour. C'est entendu. Will you be at the main entrance of the conciergerie at half-past nine? You know it, perhaps, no? It is in the Rue de la Barillerie, immediately on the right at the foot of the great staircase of the House of Justice. Of the House of Justice! she exclaimed involuntarily, a world of bitter contempt in her cry. Then she added in her former matter-of-fact tones, Very good, citizen. At half-past nine I will be at the entrance you name and I will be at the door, prepared to escort you." He took up his hat and coat, and bowed ceremoniously to her. Then he turned to go. At the door a cry from her, involuntarily enough, God knows, made him pause. "'My interview with the prisoner,' she said, vainly trying, poor soul, to repress that quiver of anxiety in her voice, "'it will be private?' "'Oh, yes, of course,' he replied with a reassuring smile. "'Au revoir, Lady Blakeney. Half-past nine, remember.' She could no longer trust herself to look on him as he finally took his departure. She was afraid—yes, absolutely afraid—that her fortitude would give way, meanly, despicably, uselessly give way, that she would suddenly fling herself at the feet of that sneering, inhuman wretch, that she would pray, implore, heaven above. What might not she do in the face of this awful reality, if the last lingering shred of vanishing reason, of pride and of courage did not hold her in check? Therefore she forced herself not to look on that departing, sable-clad figure, on that evil face, and those hands that held Percy's fate in their cruel grip. But her ears caught the welcome sound of his departure, the opening and shutting of the door, his light footstep echoing down the stone stairs. 
When at last she felt that she was really alone, she uttered a loud cry like a wounded doe, and falling on her knees, she buried her face in her hands in a passionate fit of weeping. Violent sobs shook her entire frame. It seemed as if an overwhelming anguish was tearing at her heart. The physical pain of it was almost unendurable. And yet, even through this paroxysm of tears, her mind clung to one root idea. When she saw Percy, she must be brave and calm, be able to help him if he wanted her, to do his bidding if there was anything that she could do, or any message that she could take to the others. Of hope she had none. The last lingering ray of it had been extinguished by that fiend when he said, "'We need not fear that he will escape. I doubt if he could walk very steadily across this room now.'" End of chapter 26